Hi, this is Saul Rubinek and this is Vicki Abelson's The Road Taken. TV Land and uh, Facebook Live. I'm Vicki Abelson, and this is The Road Taken. And I want you to say hello to my wing girl. How's that? Oh, that's good. Louise Palenker. I'm liking wing girl, wing woman. Wing I'll woman. be uh, your wing girl. Wing it's less girl. syllables, you, and then you have more time in your day. <laughs> so how you doing, Vicki? Um, I'm doing okay, um, Louise. I had a very interesting opportunity that I'm very grateful for this week. So, you know, I do a lot of complaining about what's going on in the world. I do a lot of worrying. I do a lot of being concerned. I do yeah. a lot of trying to mobilize myself and make phone calls and send texts about what's going on in the world, in our country. Um, but that hasn't felt very active. And I got an invitation this week to be a part of um, a, 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 a civil rights anthem that was being recorded uh, to uh, ratify the ERA um, called We Can Do It. And uh, so this woman, uh, Kamala Lopez, I thought it was Camela, but it's Kamala, uh, made this incredible film called Equal Means Equal. Mm -hmm. And so Ali Handel, who's uh, a good friend of oh, ours yes. and has been to Women Who Write, which is an amazing rock woman yes. who plays great lead guitar. She is not like... She is a hardcore rock and roll girl yeah. who really plays it. So she wrote with a woman named uh, Patricia Bahia mm -hmm. uh, this anthem, We Can Do It. And so I was invited to be part of the gang voices, which is odd if you know me because I can't sing. You're 20 feet from Stardom! <laughs> so, so I... Um, I was even closer because it was a very small studio. <laughs> and, the, and the studio owner, um, he has two first names. Uh, Patrick Joseph was wonderful mm -hmm. and, and, and led us all. But anyway, so there was a group of us. And even it didn't matter if we could sing or not sing. It was They said, we want a few people who can sing, which is, I guess, why I was invited. And there were even a couple of guys. And we did this anthem. So I have a, a one-minute clip from the recording that day. Wow. So if our producer, Brant Thoman, Brant... And our associate producer, Jake Belcher. Hey, Hi, Jake. Yeah, I love Jake. He's my so favorite. If, if Brand, if I could, if I could throw it to you, and we can play um, one minute of "We Can Do It." We can do it. Daughters and sisters, mothers and wives, every woman in every walk of life. No ceiling can stop us. We're not here to ask. It's time we're here to shatter that glass. We made a resolution to amend the Constitution and ratify the ERA. We can do it. 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 Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can do it. We can do it. We can. 
So I, all right, now how fabulous. 20 inches from stardom. Right, come on, though. How fabulous is that anthem? It's awesome. I have not been able to stop singing it, then hearing don't. it in my head. Yeah. Right, and don't, exactly. Yeah. So I'm thinking, my suggestion to the group, because I interview celebrities and that's what I do, is let's get some celebrities in there, right? So so uh, Camilla has some, some ties to um, uh, some rappers that she's going to, uh, so you're still recording? This, wouldn't it be great to have a couple people rapping over it, uh, some stuff? Oh, yeah. And then also, um, uh, I don't want to mention any names, but she had people who were willing a few years ago when she made her film to jump in. And so I'm going to make a, a few calls. And I think we should get Jimmy Kimmel in it and get it get it on the air, right? Because it's great. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so, so talking about activism, mm-hmm. our, our guest tonight is somebody that um, I have incredible... Uh, affection, but I have so much respect for Saul Rubinek, who I first came to be aware of from uh, Ticket to Heaven, which I don't know if you remember that film from the 80s, but uh, that that film was stunning. And back in those days, HBO had just kind of started, and um, they would show a movie over and over again. I must have watched Ticket to Heaven like a hundred times. But many people, most people know Saul um, from from his unbelievable roster of films and TV shows, Unforgiven, um, Frasier. I mean, he, he has uh, a, a bunch of people today. He has a show uh, more current warehouse 13 but um oh my god so let me get let me get to some of Saul's credits because it's absolutely crazy okay so against all odds true romance wall street julia nixon i love trouble undercover blues bonfire of the vanities young doctors in love sweet liberty um Okay, on TV, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Hill Street Blues, Star Trek, NYPD Blue, Law and Order. I mean, it just, it, wow. it doesn't, he, he, he's been in everything. He's, he's, he's the most when working. When does he go home? He doesn't go home. Okay. And then when he's not doing this stuff, when he's not being an actor, mm-hmm. he is writing. He is a filmmaker. He's doing important work that we'll talk about when he comes out here. Mm-hmm. Um he has two uh, children who are following in his footsteps in showbiz, showbiz footsteps, but in their own, very own in their very own way. But he he's a loving and supportive dad. He's been married to the same woman for twenty I don't know how many years five years or something. He's he's a solid citizen, Canadian and U.S. Mm. He is a, dual. a fine dual. He is a fine man, a fine person, a father, a lovely friend. Um, I adore him, and um, and he's smart and funny, and I am really looking forward to sharing him with you all. So uh, no flipping, stick around, and come back, and we'll be with Saul Rubinek. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Who the fuck is Vicki Abelson? Hello. <laughs> I wrote a book called Don't Jump, Sex drugs, rock and roll, and my fucking mother. Not my mother, Andy Stone's mother. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out, in in a good way, not not like Cosby. Too soon? Don't jump. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and my fucking mother. 
Damn, that was gonna be the name of my book. Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Who the fuck is Vicki Abelson? Mandolin Reese. I'm known as the Street Angel here in the heart of Hollywood, and I've got my third season of my talk show on Zena.tv. I have really cool guests. I'll be talking about topics that'll open your mind. So come check it out, and I look forward to seeing you. LA Street Angel, call to with Saul Rubinek. Hi, Saul. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Saul at Phil Rosenthal's Pizza and Movie Night, which was great fun. And then Saul came and did Women Who Write, which uh, was amazing. Um, And I have a specific purpose for a person for inviting you here because you have managed to be one of the most working actors through a very through a lot of transition and you've worked in all facets of from stage screen large and small writer filmmaker you've done a lot of stuff and okay so it all began in germany my father was a holocaust survivor both my parents were my father had broken away from a kind of hasidic world cut off his past his side curls and become an actor in yiddish theater and and, uh, when he was about 18 in 1938 and when i i was born in a refugee camp they both survived together i was born in a refugee camp right outside of munich when i was nine months old we came to montreal my father had to give up all those dreams because he couldn't speak english and he worked in a factory and had a little family to support why, why why Montreal? What, why? Because he had, uh, the, my mother had a relative there in order to uh-huh. get sponsored, in order to make it out of Europe. I mean, they ran away from where the Russians controlled the country. The, the Europe was divided up between Churchill, Stalin, and you know, and, and so FDR. What year, so what they year? Was, did they come? Forty nine. Mm-hmm. When I was nine months old. So what happened was that <laughs> I grew up with this idea that. There was this, I must have been about five or six, and I thought, okay, so there was a very powerful man called um, Hitler, and he came to power in order to stop my father from doing Yiddish theater. Oh. And so that when I grew up and I grew older, I realized I wasn't so far off from the truth, actually, mm. about that. But that's how uh, I come by it, as they say, honestly, so that when I moved to, my father got a job, a better job, and we moved to Ottawa, and I didn't speak English that well because I... I kind of spoke a combination of 
French called Joao uh -huh. and Yiddish. Our street was an immigrant street. So I spoke French and Yiddish better than I spoke uh, English. And by the time I went to Ottawa and I had to go to a public school, I had to learn English. My parents knew somebody who was going to the Ottawa Theater School and I suddenly was at the Ottawa Theater School and and it was some it was like I was a fish and somebody had um, and somebody had uh, thrown me into a water and uh, I had gills I didn't know I had gills and <laughs> that's how it all started for me when I was seven uh huh or so and so uh, okay so what was the first what's the first time you were on stage like when did it hit you that that was what you wanted to do. When I was seven? Yeah, well, okay, but I mean, what, what? That was that. But what, okay, so what, and Honestly, what, what? Ricky, no, listen to me. Th that was that. And nothing changed. Nothing changed. No, I knew what I wanted to do when I was seven because it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and nothing really changed except how to keep doing it, which is. So how, how did you keep doing it? Accidentally, I mean, if I look back at my so-called career, I uh -huh. say so-called because okay. uh, most people's career, so I did this by accident and this lucky thing happened and it's not like I was in control of it. Most of us, I don't know anybody who's in control of a career. Right. There's, um, you, things happen and then the, you add it all up and they say, well, you had this career. As if you could choose that. I, I didn't. Uh, I, I followed, you know, whatever path I could. The truth is, because we had this little conversation earlier about tools that people need in order to survive. The truth is that I was I was Canadian. I was living in Ottawa. I was I had some friends who were mentors. I was doing children's theater and I was doing a lot of radio drama. And uh, in those days, and I eventually we formed our own little theater. We performed shows in a coffee house. I. I went to England, tried to get into drama schools, didn't get into any drama school. I ended Which up is unbelievable. And that was just the way it was, and I may, may have been terrible. And I ended up at 18 being a busker and, you know, singing on the street with my guitar in various countries to mm -hmm. make a living. And I ended up on a dare when I was 19, auditioning for Stratford, breaking into the audition at Stratford. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I crashed an audition. And uh, I got into Stratford when wow. I was 20 years old in Stratford, Canada. And I left, which much to my parents' chagrin, after a year because I wasn't really playing roles. And I could see the kind of stuff that was going on there was going to kill me. Not that there was anything wrong with Stratford, but it wasn't for me. And I could see that I wasn't going to get anywhere there. And I ended up being in what my parents called a hippie theater. It was nice for my parents to say, you know, their son is <laughs> in Stratford. And I actually was making a living at 20 years old as an actor. I gave all that up quickly. And I went to join my maniac hippie friends who were doing theater that was very bizarre, all of which those theaters are all now that I helped form were all, are all established theaters now. But we're talking about, you know, we're talking about 40 years ago. So, so what, such 50, as? 50 years ago. Well, you wouldn't know the names of these okay. theaters, but they're in Toronto. But, uh, but, they're, but they're established theaters Okay. Um, and they're And that's how I learned my craft as mm -hmm. I was... I was in uh, in a group of uh, struggling artists, and and I was in a situation that was a lot different from American actors because in those days, I'm talking about the early '70s. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a few Canadian playwrights, but most of the theater world uh, in Canada was either British or French. The French were far ahead culturally. Uh, in Quebec, there was a far more vigorous uh, original. Um, 
theater scene in Quebec, mm -hmm. uh, in Montreal, and filmmaking as well. But in English Canada, we were importing our stuff from the United States and from England. And uh, uh, my generation were really the first generation that, if you could equate it to anything in America, it would have been what happened in the 20s and 30s here, uh, with mm -hmm. Eugene O'Neill and Ben Hecht and the group theater and the things that the, the birth of the American playwright, mm -hmm. real birth of the American playwright, which happened uh, just after the turn of the century in the United States, happened in the 70s in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, when I was in my 20s. And mm -hmm. I was part of that. I was fortunate enough to be a part of the group that were doing original Canadian plays for the first time, playwrights that were coming out of the woodwork. Why? Because Trudeau, our, mm -hmm. the present prime minister's father, uh, was prime minister, and he opened up the doors. He gave grants and cultural grants and ways for artists to make, to make some money. There were initiative. There were mm -hmm. local initiative programs, mm -hmm. which the Americans would have called socialism. <laughs> but what we called, um, you know, uh, just uh, a, a good way of uh, of supporting the arts, and uh, which most of the country, most of the world does in the Western mm -hmm. world, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Were your parents supportive of you doing this? They had very little choice. <laughs> but, uh, because I was single-minded, they would mm -hmm. have liked me to have gone to college. I did mm -hmm. one year and, and didn't, and then dropped out, and then tried another year and said, oh, well, this. Mm -hmm. It's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I did what I wanted to do. If I look back on it, it was insane. And, I, and, and then, you know, I, that's, that's simply how it happened for me. I had How did the Americanization of uh, Saul Rubinek happen? Well, the, the, the most important thing, th that just happened because I hit a glass ceiling pretty quickly in, in Toronto. And once mm -hmm. I had become a big fish in a small pond and I became a kind of underground theater under underground theater actor and mm -hmm. then the, for some reason the television opened just around then it was all not open to us but suddenly the person who was put in charge an extraordinary man called John Hirsch was put in charge of drama and he opened the door to all these alternative theater actors and directors and writers and, and playwrights who became you know, writing for television and extraordinary filmmakers that he invited from Quebec and from all over Canada and mm -hmm. there was this real cross-pollination of, of wonderful people mm -hmm. that's how you know, Cronenberg got his start, for example, in those days, in the 70s, and all these wonderful writers. Um, Alice Munro's stories were being adapted for the first time. Margaret Atwood's stuff, I mean, it was amazing world. And so I was doing one television show after another, suddenly after 20 years in the theater. Really? From 7 to 27, suddenly okay. I was doing uh, all these, uh, you know, television shows, and... I had the opportunity to get a green card mm -hmm. through my parents, and I came to New York and started working as an American actor. But what I wanted to tell you was that the truth was, when I look back on it now, I would say that the most talented people, and I've worked with some really amazing people throughout my career, but I would say some of the most talented people that I've ever met in my life, and I'm 69, and I've been doing it so now for 60 two years don't do this business because talent yeah. is a box that's nice to have checked mm -hmm. there are 39 other boxes and 20 of those 39 boxes are can you get up after you've been knocked down mm -hmm. and that's not something you know about yourself until you find out about whether you've got it and I'm not talking about being an actor mm -hmm. I'm talking about being any kind of artist, especially difficult 
in America. And why America? Because I started as a Canadian. It's a more European temperament, and I mean by that. Everywhere I've gone in the world, after, you know, famous shows like Frasier or True mm -hmm. Romance or Unforgiven, and I started to get recognized, what happens to me everywhere mm -hmm. is I know, where do I, I know you from somewhere, and I go, well, I don't know, was, was it, I, I don't know, I don't know your name, what, I saw her, like, well, what do I, was it, was it, oh, is that, okay, not, in, in the United States, what I found, there's a big difference, mm -hmm. and what the difference is, is that you get, I would get, more often than not, incredibly apologetic people, very nice people, that they don't know my name. Mm. Why only in America does that happen? I'll tell you. Okay. Anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. I don't care where it is, anywhere, mm -hmm. west, east, anywhere, if you're an artist, mm -hmm. if you're a dancer, a writer, a painter, a musician, an actor, a writer, a director, a poet, you can make a living at what you love. You can make a living at what you love. What do we call that? We call that being a success. Right. Not here. You also have to be rich and famous here. So that... This is what I want to talk about, So Saul. that... An, I know. That's why I'm telling you this. Okay. This is why the fans who'd come up to me mm -hmm. would be so apologetic that they didn't know my name. Mm -hmm. Why were they apologetic? Well, because... I'm really sorry. I don't know your name. Why are you so sorry? Well, because if I, if I don't know your name, you couldn't be as successful as I'm sure you want to be. Ooh. Well, that's, that's, that's a flea that doesn't just bite the fans. That's a flea that bites the artists. Wow. So many, many artists feel that they're not successful unless they're also r rich and famous, and that, that flea can bite them very easily mm -hmm. uh, because it's part of the culture that you're surrounded by. So it's false did, value. Did you, did you ever, well, fe value, did you ever feel that? Did that sure, ever? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. Uh, like everybody else, I got bitten by it. The first time I ever was in L.A., uh, which is so isolating, mm. uh, the first time I actually looked for work here on my own without having a job was in the early 80s, and I found myself on my way to an audition for something I didn't want to do. Was this the audition story you told me to ask you about? Okay, no, that's something else. No, but I'll talk else. to okay. you just about auditioning. Okay. But when I realized mm -hmm. I was auditioning for a job I didn't want, uh -huh. I realized that it was because of cars and houses. Because mm -hmm. here, you don't run into something by somebody buying milk who just had a bad audition the way you do in New York and Toronto and Chicago and wherever. There's a community, a city. Here, right. you pass people in their cars, right. and and you're surrounded by the manifestations of people's um, wealth, which is usually houses and cars. It's but very difficult to get your headset out of that. And and people though all look like they have that. E everybody has a leased brand new car in L.A. Everybody looks per. Everybody wears well, the. Well, certainly not everybody. The people that you are. A lot of people. People pose. Pe people are very. Im it's very important in L.A. The car you drive, the clothes you wear, the face you. Wear, all of that uh, is not like the rest of the world that I. No, you. Uh, I can. You have to take a break. We we are going to take a break. Thank you for keeping me on uh, on track, <laughs> Saul. Yeah, we're going to take a break for for just a minute. So stick around because there's a lot more to talk about with Saul. Because I want to know how you manage to keep your your head and feet on the ground. Don't your, well, yeah. Anyway, we're going to talk about it when we come back. So be right back with Saul Rubinek.
Jason Stewart here for Zinna TV. On the show Absolutely Jason Stewart every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Big guests, everyone from the gayest to gay to the straightest to straight. David, uh, oh, what was his name? He's absolutely Jason, he's absolutely gay, he'll absolutely brighten up. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Who the fuck is Vicki Abelson? Hello. <laughs> I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and my fucking mother. Not my mother, Andy Stone's mother. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Don't jump. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and my fucking mother. Damn, that was gonna be the name of my book. Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Who the fuck is Vicki Abelson? This is Mandolin Reese. I'm known as the Street Angel here in the heart of Hollywood. And I've got my third season of my talk show on Zena.tv. I have really cool guests. I'll be talking about topics that'll open your mind. So come check it out. And I look forward to seeing you. L.A. Street Angel. Call to heal these streets. So we're back with Saul Rubinek, and there's, I, I don't even know where to start with the questions, because I, one thing that's really important to me is that we get you to share with our audience, which is filled with people who are still trying to I'll figure out how to merge creativity you? and commerce. Can I yes, you? I you can. I got to New York where okay. I was 28, 29 years old. I'd already done, I don't know, seven, ten leading, leading roles on, on Canadian television. Mm -hmm. Uh, managed to get an agent because of that, although it wasn't that easy because it was in those days that you couldn't, you had to go out to rent a VCR. I mean, people didn't huh. have VCRs in their offices until <laughs> 77, 78. Right. So you had to rent a three-quarter inch machine <laughs> to show your work. But I got an agent, and the very first thing I remember that the, a good agent, and she said to me, I've got this leading role in a movie and uh, that you're going to audition for, and I read it, and I said, yeah, well, not for me. And... Uh, and she said, what are you talking about? And I said, I don't think the role is right for me. And she said, but I, uh, what? <laughs> this is a, it's, it's for a lead in a movie. There's, I mean, it's a small movie, but it's for mm -hmm. a lead. And I said, you know, when I was 28, I looked about 19. And she said, um, it's, you know, you, you, could look, you could do this. And I said, yeah, but I don't want to. 
I don't really think it's right for me. The truth was that she hadn't heard an actor say they weren't right for something. Mm-hmm. I knew already having, but you got to remember, I was 28, 29. I'd been doing it now for 22 years. Right, right. And it didn't matter whether it was film or television or stage. I mm-hmm. read it and I went, I'm not right for this role. Mm-hmm. One point she was said, you, this is an audition of Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese are going to be there. And I said, yeah, I'm wrong for this. They said, why would you turn down an audition? with Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese in the room, I said, why would I want to be in a room with those extraordinary artists for something that I'm wrong for? Wow. Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. I, so I learned that I had already knew never to go try to get a job. This is the, the point okay. if anybody who's an actor and wants to hear this, is that I learned that all of that's about psychology. I, the psychological trick of the mind is to... I learned I'm not never going to try to get a job. I'm going to do a different verb, and that is to give a performance. Ah. There's, uh, I'm not there to get something. Oh. I'm there to give something. Okay. So I have to turn that casting director and that director and that other producer who I don't know who their name is, I have to turn them from director, producer, casting director into audience. And the only way to do that is a trick of the mind that I'm going into that room probably the only chance I'll ever have to play this role. First of all, I have to want to not get the gig. I have to want to play the role. Mm -hmm. So now that I want to play the role and I figured out what I want to give, what about me, what turns me on about it, what excites me, what's something that I want to share with, with, this is the only audience I'm ever going to get. So I'm going to do that. I'm Mm going to go into the room with that psychology. If I can't do that, then I'm not going to go there. And I, I don't know if that's, that's not really not integrity. It's just, I was smart about what it was that I was going to do. Because so many of the actors, that means I never went in with a script in my hand or I never went in even holding it if I knew my lines because I needed to make them vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I needed to make them sit forward and not sit back. Wow. Which means there was no safety net. Uh-huh. Which means that I had to go there in order to give a performance. And it's not trying to figure out what they wanted. It was something that I wanted to give. Mm-hmm. And so even my life is still meetings and auditions, even at this age. I'm not a, a star that can green light things, which means like the most working actors, we go to meetings and auditions, and there's things that we have to give. When I talk to young actors about this, I say, you're going to be in this situation. You're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be with a casting director. or Maybe not. They're going to be screening you uh-huh. before you even see a producer or a director. And the most important thing I can tell you there, it's exactly the same thing. You've got to turn that casting director into an audience and take away the, what you're going to get from that person. You have something to offer. You know, my, I had a friend who's not that young. I mean, he's in his late 40s and he's a filmmaker and he was talking about, I know, I know, I've got to hustle. I've got to hustle and, I, and, I, and I, I know that I've got to do that. And I said, you know, man, you're using the wrong verb for yourself because you're putting yourself in the position of, selling something that's kind of worthless, like a con man, that word mm-hmm. is hustle. What you're doing is you're trying to connect with other artists and form relationships that are valuable, because so mm-hmm. you have something to offer. As soon as you call this hustling, as mm-hmm. soon as you call this networking, I guess, or hustling, which is also, networking has become such a pejorative word and for good reason, it's as if you have nothing to sell, but you're going to fool people into thinking you do, and you're going to try to interconnect with people in order for you to be an opportunist. Start thinking of yourself as an opportunist. You forget what it is that you actually have to give and what you have to offer. So it's as if you're immortal. 
Mm -hmm. We're mortal. We're going to die. We're, we have things that we you mm -hmm. have. This person I'm ta I was talking to was really gifted. Mm -hmm. And it was almost, it was, it, you, we all have to remind ourselves. And, uh, I'm, I talked to him mm -hmm. in a way to remind myself mm -hmm. that in the world where you're trying to get work and trying to make a living, and it's extraordinarily competitive, as we know, in mm -hmm. this world, so many people for so many, so few people for so few jobs. You have to you have to try to keep in mind that there is something that you have to offer, which is why I tell most young actors, including my daughter, that the most important thing that they can do is learn to write as fast as possible, so that you're not dependent on that entire community in order to do your work. The other thing is, I was fortunate enough to find a community. Actors who find a community will work. Actors who are isolated. Mm. by uh, having to wait for their um, chance mm -hmm. to get into a room are really uh, playing Russian roulette with their creative lives. Can and you speak about the, the community that you became a part of? Well, uh, what I happened to be a part of was a group of people trying to start a theater that was doing Canadian work. Mm -hmm. But most actors have to find a community by going to classes and finding the right class for themselves, especially in a place like L.A. or New York, where they can't just form a theater easily. Mm -hmm. Although the world is easier uh, than it was when I was young in this way, um, you can, for under a few hundred dollars, you can make a movie. Um, if you've got talent, mm -hmm. and you've got friends who are talented, and you learn how to write, or if one of you is a writer, then with your iPhone, has been shown, mm -hmm. a great movie called Tangerine was made with mm -hmm. an iPhone, there's, you can actually create your own web series, your own independent movie. You just need a community of people who are willing and uh, able to criticize each other, to, to work together, to workshop, and have something that they want to share. Uh, and then if it's worth it, then it'll get seen and it'll get noticed. There's, um, and if what you're doing it for is in order to be famous or rich or to be successful, it's really unlikely that what you have to share is going to be worth much. Mm -hmm. There's, it's unlikely, not mm -hmm. impossible, it's unlikely. So that co whatever community of artists that you can find, mm -hmm. I think it's hard for writers and painters, cause, but even they need to be in part of writer writing workshop as mm -hmm. you have your own work. Mm -hmm. Talk about how writers need to get together in order to support each other and understand their successes and failures. You know, anytime a writer has a workshop, their work grows exponentially. In a Absolutely. Way that it cannot grow if they're alone. And the same is true. I, I know painters who now you know, are part of teaching classes, or they're, they're with other painters, they discuss things. It's, mm -hmm. it's the way people can actually keep working. Uh, if, there, if I have a secret, mm -hmm. it's that. that I, when I was young... I love that. I Nobody was, shared that with us before. I, that's it's, that's it's new for us with the community. Of, uh, community. Mm -hmm. If you're on your own... I mean, I've, I, I, as you know, have created a community, and that, that's everything to me. I, th this, the financial success still eludes me and many of us in my community. But uh, so the advice that you're giving your daughter, who uh, your your son, who's tr who who uh, is uh, a writer, wants to be a television writer. Your daughter, who's an actress. Um, so you were telling me he doesn't me just want to be a television writer. My son created a, uh, co-created a web series in college that he directed and co-wrote and. He he's he made uh, three short films. He's written two full-length plays and mm -hmm. three one-act plays, and he he he's he's doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, 
my daughter is a writer and an actress and she takes classes and looking to be part of a community and and is part of a community and helps works with people who do short films and is I mean they're looking to find their their road mm -hmm. I found a road that was peculiar in my case I mean having left a steady job to go work for nothing <laughs> for no money at all with these crazy people <laughs> I believed in them you know in a way that I didn't believe in Stratford and it, it has nothing to do with Stratford, it has to do with who I was mm -hmm. and what excited me. And I was never any good at doing stuff that wasn't fun for me. I, that's why I wasn't a great student. If it wasn't fun, I couldn't do it. My kids are both great students. They were able to do stuff they didn't want to do and were, excelled at it. It wasn't me. If I, if I wasn't having fun, then I just left it and let it go. So, so what, what were some of the projects that were the most fun for you that we would know? Oh, that you would know. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you mentioned them. I mean, I, I, I worked on, I just did one probably that was probably one of the most fun things I've ever done for a couple of weeks. I, I'm in the new Coen Brothers movie called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and Other Tales of the American West. It's six, <laughs> it's six short films that, are all, that will all make up one movie, and I was working with wonderful actors. Um, and I, uh, I worked with those two guys, mm -hmm. and it was like... Uh, who have an extraordinary team had a great role and I was working with these amazing people you know when it's working it's there's really there's no ego involved it's just really good people just doing their job uh, efficiently and collaboratively and so what other experiences can you point to that have been that way for you that have really been creatively and fun honestly there are very few that haven't been that mm -hmm. way um, there are sometimes jobs where it was pretty clear that it was not going to be collaborative and I had to get through it mm. and I I'm a professional and I figured out how to do that uh, but for the most part um, I've been involved with people that are wonderfully collaborative I had five great years with you know on warehouse 13 with the, mm -hmm. with the great writer and showrunner Jack Kenny who is uh, an ex extraordinary talent a great dad to his writers really collaborative and um, just a wonderful boss and I was it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life I had a great role uh, in a series that lasted five years so I could help support my family and which send, is fantastic send my kids mm -hmm. to college but also because sci-fi and NBC at the time supported Jack in mm -hmm. what he wanted to do and he had to fight of course with them but ultimately they, they figured out a way to collaborate and he figured out a way uh, for us all to have freedom um, within that community, the mm -hmm. family that he created. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really fortunate. I think most actors will tell you that when there's a boss that's collaborative and open-minded and, and creates an atmosphere where you can fall flat in your face without censure, then you can figure out how to do your best work. And if you're a boss, uh, the real trick is that you're not there to be supported by everybody. The greatest bosses in the world, including leading actors, are there to support everyone else. Mm -hmm. That's their job. Is there is there anything that you've, I know there's something you can't talk about. Is there anything that's coming up for you that you're passionate about, excited about? What's what's going on with Saul today? Um, you have uh, one minute for me to talk <laughs> about absolutely so everything. All right, so we're gonna talk about what's coming up for you after the break. Um, 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna tr okay so warehouse 13 anything else that you can point to that that just was really fun and collaborative and wonderful for you you know pick pick one there's a there the, the truth was is ticket to heaven is I mean like ticket to heaven for me that was the first time I became aware of you was that a cha was that a, a, cha a game changer for you yeah, well in the sense that those of us who were in alternative theater at the mm -hmm. time it was made up of a group of people including Kim Cattrall mm -hmm. and uh, other people who were unknown they were all we were all part of that kind of underground theater world in Toronto and it was directed and written by somebody who knew us and brought us together so we all knew each other mm. and it was created out of a true story and so that was a really homegrown indie movie so that was it was a really special uh, event special to watch as well okay so stick around and we're going to find out what uh, is coming up next for Saul uh, we'll be right back uh, most of which I can't talk here for Zena TV on the show Absolutely Jason Stewart every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Big guests, everyone from the gayest to gay to the straightest to straight. David, uh, oh, what was his name? He's absolutely Jason, he's absolutely gay, he'll absolutely brighten up. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Who the fuck is Vicki Abelson? Hello. <laughs> I wrote a book called Don't Jump, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and My Fucking Mother. Not my mother, Andy Stone's mother. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Don't jump. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and my fucking mother. Damn, that was gonna be the name of my book. Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Who the fuck is Vicki Abelson? And we're back with Saul Rubinek. And so as we were pulling out to break, uh, and I was saying, okay, so we want to hear for you, Saul. I was told that most of what he's doing, we can't talk it's about. It's because it might get sold, it might not. And I don't want to. Yeah, can't, you I, can't give it a Kinahura. <laughs> no, but what I, you know, I, I, I work, and I have been for over 20 years as a writer. I've been working, doing different things. I, I wrote a play uh, that was on in London in 2011. It was directed by... Frank Oz, it, uh, it's got Bakula in it, and three wonderful actors, including Sharon Horgan, who I met then, who is the star and creator of Catastrophe and the creator of Divorce on HBO. I love Catastrophe. And Sharon, and I just Sharon, watched it. And Sharon was uh, one of the stars of the play, so mm -hmm. we were collaborating on a project that I'm 
my daughter and my wife and I and Sharon are she's a producer and a very prolific one um, and that play I have a producer who wants to put it on in New York mm -hmm. so we're trying to find the director and the cast for that it's called Terrible Advice it's a four camera four camera four character <laughs> like the title. four <laughs> character comedy about mm -hmm. middle aged uh, love and sex and friendship oh. and betrayal and, mm -hmm. and um, that's that's that's, it was also translated into German and, and put on in Berlin, which is really a thrill for me because it was written a theater on the Kurfürstendamm where I used to sit outside in 1968 and play guitar for, mm. for, um, for money. And it was Do you still speak Yiddish, by the way? Yeah, I can speak Yiddish mm -hmm. quite fluently, which means I can understand German quite well. And mm -hmm. I'm fluent, pretty fluent in French because I where I grew up. So I, that play, I'm mm -hmm. writing another play. Uh, I've written a novel that I'm uh, just trying to put the finishing touches to, which I'll and try to find an agent for. I've written a second edition with the help of my daughter editing. I wrote a book uh, in 1986 that you know about called this So Many Miracles, mm -hmm. which is about, um, and I interviewed my parents for 10 years about their uh, long love affair, but it's mostly about how these two young people survived the Holocaust together. And it's based on interviews with them that I did over 10 years. It's all in their voices. My daughter graduated from college. She uh, four mm -hmm. years ago, and she came back and said, this has got to be re-edited. And I had put a new introduction, a new epilogue, and all these extraordinary things happened to my daughter as a result of it, and to my extended family that I didn't know I had and found out about. Wow. So I rewrote that book, and I'll probably self-publish it. It's very difficult to get a book yeah. mm -hmm. about the Holocaust um, to, to, to go out there with publishers, but, but I'm working on that. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of different series ideas. My wife, uh, Eleanor Reed, is a my partner and co-producer, we've been married for 27 years. And we're and, and so we're working on three, four, five different <laughs> things. And, um, so that's, my life is to is about trying to um, get my writing out there and collaborating with people about different projects as a writer. Um, and to continue to work as an actor so I can support the family. And so a part of your advice in a previous segment was to do the writing ourselves for those of you who are acting out there, to get your work out there. Well, I'm to saying to young your actors, platform. I'm saying if you, you learn to write if you can. Go to writing workshops and learn to write because you're going to have to get your creative outlet somewhere, and it can't just be an acting class. And, um, you know, I have this, this theory that this not very attractive actor wasn't working very much, and he said, fuck it, I'm just going to... I'm going to write, and suddenly all the group around him suddenly got a job. His name was Will Shakespeare. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and, he, and he and so he started writing so uh, nine other people had a job whatever it was I mean mm -hmm. he was an actor to start with mm -hmm. I mean, he might not have been very good mm -hmm. but whatever happened he, f he figured it out and I think that writing is um, more and more important to young actors to figure out how to do or to collaborate with other people to do mm -hmm. so that they're not isolated that also helps bring you part of the community even if you're writing a short uh, film that you can uh, shoot uh, with now rather inexpensive equipment even if you're creating three or four little uh, uh, short films or however or however you're doing if you're writing a play that you're going to put on somebody's living room for 10 people you, you're you're not just waiting for other people to to lend you that commercial or to get that guest starring role on that particular series that you don't really like anyway but you want to get seen so you've got to get into that casting director's room and you're going to have to do the best audition you can with banal material that you can't really change too much or they'll call you uh, somebody who changes material and so <laughs> you're, you're going to have to figure out how to turn sow's ears into silk purses which is the job most working mm. actors have to do mm -hmm. which is take banal material very often and turn it into something special well 
you can write your own or find somebody to collaborate with to write your own. So you and there just- are great platforms for that now. I mean, Amazon and Netflix, so many of the shows that are on there are actors or comedians that wrote their own vehicles. Catastrophe is, is, is a great example of that. They created their own vehicle. That, that was uh, Rob Delaney's first real acting platform. And, um, yeah, there are tr- a, a ton of examples of that. And there are these great platforms where that becomes possible. It's really hard for young actors to hear me say, don't go into a room w- with a role you don't want to do. Mm. They're, they're just starting out with agents. The agents mm-hmm. might drop them if they feel that's the case. And you don't know what you really want to do yet. It's not that clear. I wasn't that young. I was already 28, 29 when I made that decision. I wouldn't that's, have had that's young, but you'd been doing it for a long time. I wouldn't time. have known that at 22. Right. I wouldn't have known I was wrong for this or mm-hmm. right for that. I would have just gone. Mm-hmm. But the trick, but there's still a trick, and that's what I'm telling you, is that you, you really have to convince yourself and understand the trick of the mind that you're not in that room to get a gig. You're there because you want to play that role. And you're not just, you don't want to just play it. You're actually going to get a chance to play it. You're going to get a chance in that room to play it. Mm. Somebody shared that recently at a Q&A I was at. Uh, I can't remember who the actor was who said that, oh, it was William Macy, said that when he goes into an audition, he is so excited at the opportunity to have an audience to listen to him play that role for those go. minutes. And that is that that excitement, that passion, that that is the thing that Yeah, that's how he goes well, into exactly every audition. Talk, that's yes. Exactly what I'm talking that about. is exactly what you're that's talking a trick about. Of the mind. Yes. It's not about your talent in that place. It's about whether or not you're gonna get your talent out. And if what's really other actors saying you can't show your desperation, that's really kind of really what you're showing is the most your motivation is I want the job, and that's not what you want to share. Oh. You want to share who this character is right. with these people. I love that. Um, that's our takeaway, I think, for today, Weezy. Yes. I think we got our takeaway that you yes. know, having that passion and going into the room because it's, it's an opportunity for us to share. Uh, and in this case, it's an opportunity to share the road taken. And Saul, thank you so much for doing that. I'm so grateful to have had you here. And Louise, thanks as always. Thank you. Um, we'll look forward to seeing you next week, next Wednesday, on another The Road Taken.